Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Before we begin, a quick warning. In the past, Nighttime has welcomed guests that brought with them some controversial baggage. But this is going to be different. References will be made to neo-Nazism, mass murder, and self-harm. If these topics are triggers to you, either sit this one out, or at least proceed with caution. The views and opinions of this guest do not reflect those of Nighttime or its host, Jordan Bonaparte. Listener discretion is advised. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast. Focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to an ongoing series exploring the life and crime of Lindsay Suvonaroff, the young woman convicted of conspiracy to commit murder as a result of her role in the failed Halifax Shopping Center Valentine's Day Massacre. In the first part of this series, I provided a basic introduction to the events and people associated with the failed mass shooting plot. To remind you with a few words, a local young man named James Gamble met 23-year-old Lindsay Suvonaroff online. The two formed a relationship after bonding over a shared interest in the Columbine shooting. Shortly after meeting, the pair began to plan their own shooting spree and chose the Halifax Shopping Center's food court as their venue. In February 14th, Valentine's Day, as the date. The result of the deadly attack, and whatever carnage may have followed, would only be known by the many Halifax residents who were left to speculate what if. As it turned out, an anonymous tip would derail the attack only hours before it was set to begin. Lindsay Suvonaroth was arrested at the airport after arriving to Halifax from Chicago via a one-way ticket. Another conspirator named Randall Shepard was arrested as he arrived at the airport to pick up the incoming American. And James Gamble, he would take his own life as police closed in on his Halifax area home. But despite the death of one and arrest of the two other conspirators, the public attention this plot received was not swayed. Far from it, in fact. The public would become captivated by the case, not only because of the thoughts of what if, but like too many other acts of violence against the public, people wanted to know why. With even cursory research into the three conspirators' lives, it's immediately apparent they came from very dark places. All three left behind digital footprints that displayed an obsession with violence, as well as postings that crossed whatever line exists between glorifying and celebrating the Columbine Massacre. But among the three... Lindsay Suvonaroth seemed to be even more complicated. The disturbing shadow she cast across the internet added another disturbing element to the violence and hatred. Lindsay's writings, artwork, and message board activities heavily featured her beliefs in Nazism. 
it's not any surprise why the sleek-featured Columbine-obsessed Nazi with murderous ambitions became a fixture on the evening news. Lindsay Suvonaroth is not unlike a villain from a Batman movie, except this one would be far too dark to ever make it to film. Most of us will have lived a life without ever encountering someone like Lindsay Suvonaroth, and many of us, had it not been for this story, would have trouble even believing there are people with these interests living among us. The public was and is still puzzled by the mystery of how an educated young woman from a middle-class family in suburban Illinois could take a path through life that would lead to her adopting what the overwhelming majority feel as disturbing antisocial beliefs. But the path Lindsay's life took and the factors that led in this direction have remained as obscured as her motives in the mass shooting plot. See, Lindsay Suvonaroth was not talking. In fact, since she boarded a plane to Halifax with a goal of killing and dying, Lindsay hasn't spoken a word publicly. But that's about to change. Lindsay is now ready to tell her story, unapologetically and straight. During this series, she won't only tell us why she did the things she did, but also she'll explain how her life brought her to this point. And that's where we're going to start, with a discussion that aims to identify the moments in her life that brought her here. In this episode of Nighttime, our focus will be on the life Lindsay Suvonaroth led before she chose death. My name is Lindsay Suvonaroth. I was one of three conspirators in a mass murder plot to attack the Halifax Shopping Center, what the press called the Valentine's Day Massacre. Though this massacre was never carried out, I was given a life sentence for conspiracy to commit murder. When I connected with Lindsay, I'm not sure what I was expecting. Given what I had read about her, I suppose I assumed to have my questions met with aggression and intensity. But as you'll hear, she's actually mild-mannered, well-spoken, and if you didn't consider the things she was saying, she's surprisingly quite pleasant to talk with. Now, after making our introductions to each other and spending a bit of time adjusting the recording equipment in such a way to compensate for the poor quality of the prison phone system, Lindsay and I began plans to share her story. In short, we'd agreed to simply talk person to person. Of course, many of the things she expressed go against my deeply held beliefs concerning equality, personal freedoms, and quite simply not killing other people. This wasn't going to be about challenging her beliefs. What would be the point in that? I simply wanted to try and understand what would lead a young, intelligent woman to travel across the continent to murder people she'd never met in the food court of a mall she'd never stepped foot in. So with that as my mantra, I poured a large cup of coffee and began a conversation with Halifax's public enemy number one. Our talk would begin at the very beginning, with a short discussion surrounding Lindsay's childhood. I was born in Chicago to a family like any other. My mother and father were still together, and I had two older siblings, both from my mother's previous marriage. When I was eight years old, we moved to Geneva, Illinois, a suburb. I had a normal childhood. We had trips to Disney World, family vacations, things like that. And there really wasn't much of anything to indicate that I would go down the path that I eventually went down. There wasn't any trauma. There wasn't any abuse, nothing like that. It was just me and my family, and we all loved each other very much. 
what kind of interests did you have as, as a kid? What, what did you do to pass your time? Well, I was really into computers growing up. See, my father, he was a computer programmer. He still is. And he taught me how to use the computer. I think I learned to type even before I learned to write by hand. So that was something that was always with me. And I enjoyed playing different computer games. I also really enjoyed reading and writing. And I also had my friends, and we would play pretend and do things that, like, like normal kids would do. Hearing Lindsay describe a pleasant childhood surprised me somewhat, especially so hearing her positive references to childhood friends. The image of Lindsay presented by those reporting on her crime was that of a complete loner, one who seemingly abandoned society in favor of the solitude of online message boards devoted to Nazi beliefs and Columbine. To try and understand when and how her friendships moved from neighborhood playgrounds to the darkest corners of the internet, we continued our discussions surrounding the evolution of Lindsay's social life. Well, while we lived in Chicago, I guess this would be around first and second grade, I actually was very social. I was one of the most popular kids in my class, namely because I was... I was singled out by the teacher as being like one of the smartest kids there was there. And so oh, I enjoyed a lot of friends. I went to a lot of parties as well. But then when I moved to Geneva, things started to change. I had to start all over again. I, it's always hard being the new kid. And I guess I didn't adjust that well. From then on, I, I always kept a circle of friends, but it was always small. I was, I was very loyal to them and I enjoyed very close friendships with with whoever I chose to hang out with. Okay. And as you, you got older, I'm guessing your kind of um, connection with, with people, is, is that when it kind of began, began to change to you moving kind of your friendships to people you met online? Like, could, could you just kind of talk a bit about when you started to find a, a social circle with people on the internet as opposed to finding them in, you know, your high school or whatnot? Hmm. I would say that started around high school when I started posting my writing and art online and gaining an audience for them. I just found it more convenient, a lot easier to to connect with more like-minded people online as opposed to real life, where you're not really sure if the people you're meeting really have anything in common with you. It was just a matter of efficiency. I'm a very efficient person. I don't like to waste time with small talk and things like that, so I prefer to just, like, get it out of the way and like any online format is a great way to dispose of all that stuff so it was just a matter of efficiency for me I consider this to be the best way of making friends that I knew would actually have things in common with me and not just because they shared a class with me or whatever it, that early like these early writings and artwork that you were posting initially that you know started to gain an audience what what kind of stuff was that like what were you writing and what kind of art was it could you just describe it a bit hmm. I kind of dabbled in a lot of different things the very first writings that started gaining an audience online were actually like more fantasy oriented, and I started writing these um, these song lyrics, these poems, kind of, and I and they all kind of like connected with each other. And I started drawing those characters, and those are the pieces that like started gaining attention. And then I started moving towards I don't know more horror and science fiction later on. Was that always something like the the creative writing that was always a, a passion and something you were you know good at? 
Oh, yes, certainly. It was something I've been doing since, I don't know, pretty early on in childhood. I always enjoyed like coming up with stories and, and just writing them out for other people to enjoy. Teachers always told me that I had a talent for writing, and, I, and it was just something that I wanted to pursue. You're well known for your creepypastas and whatnot, which are extremely dark. Like, was your, all, was your writing always on the dark side? Not always. When I was first beginning to write, I started writing things that, you know, normal kids would write. Things related to, you know, I don't know, maybe Harry Potter or Neopets. Something that kids would enjoy. Things inspired by the cartoons that I liked. But as I grew older, I started to sort of embrace this sort of violence and darkness. It, it just started being something that, that crept into my writing as I grew older. As I had mentioned in the introduction to this episode, I had done a considerable amount of research into the lives Lindsay and her two co-conspirators led. I was more than well aware of Lindsay's skills and successes as a short story writer. In fact, many of Lindsay's stories, credit to a past online handle she used, are still being shared across the internet in various formats by people who seemingly have no idea of the notoriety found by the actual author. If you want to get a sense of her writing, her best-known piece is likely the whimsical children's story named My Pet Skeleton. But for me, the story that stuck out the most was one called Come Resurrection. In this story, Lindsay writes in graphic detail about a man who happens upon the victim of a suicide and falls in love, despite the condition of the body. But again, to warn you, much like many aspects of Lindsay's life, her writing is not for the even remotely sensitive. So again, getting back to it, I was already well aware of her history as a writer, so I wanted to learn more about what she was doing besides imagining these disturbing stories and playing video games. What other things were you doing with your with yourself uh, in your time outside of kind of writing? Like maybe if you could talk about kind of what interests you had in high school aside from the online stuff. Well, I also enjoyed a lot of computer games and things like that. The... The high school I went to eventually had an RPG club where you would go and play these pen and paper role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, and I had some fun doing that. I was also um, I was also part of uh, the whole whole drama scene for a little while. I was even in a school play at one point. And the um, that RPG club you mentioned, just since you brought that up, that's been uh, there's been some press coverage of. I think probably you and that RPG club writing characters that had, like, the I think the Nightmare Nazi. Is that when, when this happened? Oh, that's not actually true at all. Nightmare Nazi was just a drawing I had. I never attempted to roleplay as him. Oh, wow. Because that's become, like, that's been written in a lot of different papers and articles about you. What makes you, like, why do you think that that kind of took on a life like it did? Hmm. I don't know. Just... Maybe people misremember things. There are different memories of me kind of jumbled together, and I guess that became a story. Uh, of all the stuff you read about about your life and your crime, do you feel like the, the version of Lindsay Suvonaroff that's been told in the press, is that accurate as far as like who you are and what happened, or is, there, or is it quite a bit different? Hmm. I don't know. It's quite a bit different, especially in regards to 
what I was like in high school. Like I remember like my former classmate going on about how I was obsessed with Nazis and everyone was creeped out. No, no one was creeped out. They just kind of accepted it as part of who I was. Now, since the unpleasant but necessary-to-tackle topic of neo-Nazism came up, the time is right to get into Lindsay's Nazi or National Socialist system of belief. Going into this, I had planned to address this part of Lindsay's life, but still I couldn't help being caught off guard when she brought it up so casually. I think this is the first time in my life I've ever heard someone say anything like that. But before I jump back into the conversation, I want to be completely honest about this. This is a topic I know very little about, aside, of course, from my basic knowledge of World War II and the atrocities associated with Hitler. In fact, I don't even want to know anything about it. My interest in this line of questioning wasn't about what exactly do you believe it's a Nazi. I was more interested in how did you come to believe so strongly in Nazism? Could you tell me about when you first started making connections online with people who were into the the national socialist stuff? Like, can you kind of, do you recall like kind of the first time or some of the first times you started connecting with these sorts of people? And, and if so, kind of what context did that happen in? Hmm. Well, I believe it started on this one art website. This, it was just, it just happened by chance. I came across this one painting and I was like, whoa, that's a really cool painting. And so I decided to comment, like, and comment on it and, like, talk to the artist a little. The artist just happened to be a national socialist. And I don't know, later on through him, I started meeting more national socialists and I just started networking with them and finding that I had a lot in common with them. It just, it was just like out of nowhere. It had like very little chance of actually happening, but it did. How old would you have been at this point? Like, when was this that that happened? I'm thinking maybe 16 years old or 17. Mm-hmm. And when you first started kind of connecting with these people and talking and finding you had things in common, was it more so talking about, like, art and that sort of thing? Or, or were you did you dive kind of right into the ideological kind of side of it? Well, at first we started talking about art and the different games that we liked and things like that. But then I started reading more about the ideology and found that I, and found that it was a lot in alignment with things that I believed. Something that often is discussed when talking about you and your crime, specifically when talking about uh, your identity as a, as a neo-Nazi or Nazi or national socialist or whatever the right, the right word for it is, is I don't know your your ethnicity but to look at you you're not who the you don't look like a person i would expect to be to be a nazi like could you, could you maybe tell me a bit about your ethnicity but and then how that plays into your your views on race my father is from laos and my mother is an american of eastern european descent But I found I've always identified more strongly with the white half of my family than with the Asian half. See, the thing is, the way my family is, I have two older siblings from my mother's previous marriage. They're both white, so I grew up in this majority white family, and I lived in majority white neighborhoods pretty much all my life. And my father, 
he does he didn't really introduce me to much of Asian culture when I was growing up. He didn't teach me the language he spoke or anything. So I've always like identified more strongly as being white than anything else because that's how I was raised. And now we're a lot of your your beliefs would kind of like somebody raised the way you are. It seems like your beliefs would tell you that that that's not okay or that that that's not a a good thing. Like how do how does your situation and your life kind of fit into the the broader view of of your of your beliefs like is it is it not contradictory i don't really feel it's contradictory i mean my beliefs they come from a very strong sense of what is right and what is wrong in the world i am not in this to promote myself because that is not what politics is for it is about how the world should work not about what would benefit me so you kind of view your your thoughts on on race and it, it you're not seeing yourself as the center of the world you're kind of looking at the you know the bigger picture and not considering yourself yes yeah, certainly at this point in the narrative we're getting to know Lindsay Suvonaroth as she was during her high school years as we heard a considerable amount of her time was spent on creative writing but she was making some connections in dark circles and was taking some large steps in her evolution towards the complicated boogeyman that would begin to haunt evening newscasts. Now, given what I'd known about the hateful direction Lindsay's life would ultimately take, I wanted to get into another topic before we moved on to her college years. Was anger and violence a part of her life, of course, outside of her creative works? Given what you're known for today and, you know, that you're in prison and a life sentence, have you ever found yourself in trouble before? Like, did you have a criminal record before this or any type of trouble with the law before all this happened? Oh, no, not at all. What about violence? Like, did you have in your history ever, like, if somebody knew, like, your life story, would there be things that they could look back at and be like, see, like, this is this is what proves she had violent tendencies? Like, was there... Anything you can think of, a time where you lost your temper and lashed out, or, or something that people would look back at as a red flag that you had a violent, violent, uh, violence in your future? I don't know. As a child, I had a tendency to lash out physically if, I don't know, someone was behaving in a way that I didn't like. But I grew out of it by the time that I was in, I don't know, seventh grade or something like that. So, I don't know, for a long time, it was just me not mostly keeping myself not harming anyone really what what about like uh throughout your life like your your temper and your kind of attitude towards other people like if somebody met you would they think like that is an angry pissed off nazi or or do you kind of keep your emotions kind of in check in person i actually am very good at regulating my emotions most of the time the thing is, when people think of me, they they might remember my emotional outbursts more than they remember, like, all the times when I stayed quiet, when I maybe should have said something. Lindsay's story, as told by the press, often referenced being a recent graduate of a respected college in Iowa. After a short break... Lindsay will tell us about how an unapologetic young Nazi with a propensity to express herself using graphic depictions of violence interacts with students and faculty of a liberal arts college associated with the Presbyterian Church. 
And of course, we'll hear how Lindsay became a member of the strange subculture known as Columbiners. Now, how's that for a setup? Welcome back. We're going to pick up the story of Lindsay Suvonaroth from a point just after her graduation from high school and follow her through a period of her life that sees the next stage in her evolution towards the young woman who would be arrested at the Halifax airport on the eve of Valentine's Day. Much like many of us, after high school, Lindsay looked out into the mist that obscures the many routes we can follow through life. At this point, the most appealing step was to continue her education with a focus on creative writing, something she'd already excelled at. But as you can imagine, Lindsay's beliefs in Nazism led to some friction among the other young philosophers and faculty at the Liberal Arts College. Well, I went to Coe College, which is actually a liberal arts college, and it's in Iowa. And I majored in English and creative writing. I mostly went there for the creative writing major, but but when you take the creative writing major, you have to take something else with it. So I thought English would be the natural thing to do. You're, at this point, you had already developed your national socialist beliefs, and that was a part of who you are. Did that ever kind of pop its head up in, in your you know creative writing or whatnot? I'm just thinking at a liberal arts college, being a national socialist and having those beliefs, that must have caused some friction. How did, how did um, your, your students and professors react to this? Well, at one point in my creative writing classes, I decided to write these national socialist inspired stories about about this um, about this guy named uh, about this guy named Spostakron who becomes an emperor, and and I like kind of peppered it with like national socialist themes, and I tried to and I kind of like tried to illuminate some of the things that I believed and. This caused quite a bit of controversy in when it was time to workshop my fiction. Like people like talked a lot about like whether they agreed with the beliefs in in the story rather than like how well I expressed them. And at one point I was um I was even asked to talk to the dean of students there. And I at first I was afraid thinking, "Oh no, I must be in trouble." But I, but turns out I wasn't. He was actually concerned for me. He was just worried that other students might end up harassing me for my beliefs, and he was actually pretty open-minded about it. But later on, one of my professors actually called me into his office to ask me if I was a Holocaust denier. And I completely flubbed my answers because that question just threw me so much I did not know what to say. And looking back, I thought, okay, that was, that was kind of strange. And in a political science class, when when the professor asked us how many of us did not believe in democracy, I was one of two students who raised my hand, and she asked me what I did believe in, and I said quite bluntly, I am a national socialist. And she said, had something to the effect of that it was the first time she'd ever had a Nazi in one of her classes. And that was about it. Wow. Did you, did you finish your, your schooling there and end with like a diploma or degree or something? And, and if so, kind of what was, at this point in your life, what was your plans as what you were going to do next after you finished that school? Well, I got my degree in English and Creative Writing, 
And I didn't really have much of a solid plan. I was originally thinking of maybe going to Asia to teach English because when I went to Asia as part of a study abroad semester, I we spent a day teaching some Cambodian kids English, and I had a lot of fun doing that. So I thought maybe that's something I might want to do. So one of the things I did was apply to the Peace Corps. I didn't get in, of course, but by then, like James and I were already planning things, so it was pretty much a moot point by then. When you were done school, considering maybe going overseas, what what was happening in your life? Like, were you working or living with your parents? Can you just kind of describe what your life was like in the time leading up to meeting James and, and this plan happening? Oh, I was just living with my parents. I didn't really have any solid career plans and really had no interest in creating them. But I was hoping to maybe finish the novel that I was working on and get it published. What was that novel? Oh, it was something that I had been working on since my freshman year of college. It was about this boy who falls in love with death. What do you, what's the name of it, or did you title it? The title of it was "If a Skull Could Blush." It, did you ever? Whatever happened to it? I've never heard of this piece or this book. Oh, it was um, saved on my laptop and on Google Drive. I was working on it for a while, and then. I don't know, since I no longer have access to my computer or to the internet, I'm not able to work on it at the present time. So you were living with your parents, working on this novel, considering you're getting published. You weren't working an actual job, maybe considering going overseas. What else were you doing to pass the time at this point in your life? Like, what would a normal day look like for Lindsay Suvonaroth? Well, a lot of the time I would just stay up all night on my favorite websites and then, like, pass out at maybe 10 in the morning or something like that, wake up at, I don't know, oh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then, and then I don't know, the next day I would have a completely different sleep cycle. It was, it was a very strange way to live. When considering Lindsay's life in the context of her role as a would-be mass murderer, This period of time, this strange way to live that Lindsay just described, seems to be among the most critical parts. Living with her parents, with unclear next steps in life, and staying up all hours the night and day on her computer, this turned out to be the breeding ground for the final stages of Lindsay's evolution. It's at this point that her interests or obsessions with Columbine would begin, as well as she would meet James Gamble, and the two of course would begin planning their Valentine's Day massacre. We'll go through these events one at a time, as, oddly, this all fits together in such a simple but dangerous way. I'm going to start with Lindsay's association with the Columbiner subculture. I'm not going to go into this in much detail, but since this is likely a lifestyle that not everyone listening is aware of, let me give this some context. Most of us are familiar with the Columbine Massacre which was a horrific school shooting in which two high school students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, opened fire on students and faculty, killing 13 people and injuring many others before taking their own lives as police closed in. This event, it struck fear into the lives of millions, but some out there had a very different reaction. There are legions of people around the world who celebrate the event and look at the perpetrators, Eric and Dylan, as sort of horrific folk idols. These people, who typically connect with each other on various websites and message boards, are known quite simply as Columbiners. So how did Lindsay Suvonaroff, 
the co-college graduate with Nazi ideologies become a member of this almost too bizarre to be true community? Well, remember how Lindsay described spending her time throughout college working on a novel called If a Skull Could Blush. In this period of irregular sleep and no direction, Lindsay would decide to refocus more of her energy on completing that book, and she felt it needed a new plot device. It needed a school shooting. But before we hear Lindsay describe this, I want to give another warning. Up until now, the conversation with Lindsay has been fairly tame. However, we're about to get into Lindsay's feelings about mass shootings, and they're likely a lot different than yours or mine. Can you just tell me about your history of interest with school shootings, Columbine, and and that culture? When I first heard of the Columbine shooting, it was when it happened back in 1999. I would have been only seven years old in first grade, I think. Maybe second grade, I don't know. But anyway, I heard of it pretty early on in my life, and it was just something that kind of stayed with me. I didn't really have an active interest in it, though, until I was in college. I was right. I was working on my novel about the boy who falls in love with death, and I thought, hmm, once he's a teenager, it would make sense if there was a school shooting at some point in this novel. And so I started researching school shootings, and I looked up the Columbine shooting and started reading more about that, and it Again, it was all just academic at first, but then I just found myself more and more identifying with the shooters and what they believed in and things like that. What about, because the shooters are Eric Harris and and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine shooters, what about them did you connect with or, or did you relate to the most? Like, Was there something about their life that you saw in your own? Some of the things that... Eric wrote in his journal, just reminded me of things that I used to believe in when I was younger. I basically see myself as a more refined version of Eric Harris, just someone who who like has the same sort of motivations that he has, albeit a bit more refined, more sophisticated, because I've had like more opportunity to do research on ideology and those sorts of things. Do, do you recall a point where it kind of turned over from, you know, I'm researching it, I'm kind of interested and kind of relate to these people a bit, to when it turned over from that to getting the point where it was, you know, became a part of your, almost your identity because you were, you know, blogging about it and featuring Columbine related imagery and the artwork you were making. Can you kind of maybe explain when it went even, even further to becoming, you know, more so a part of your life? Just when I started posting in the Columbine tag and kind of networking with the other people who posted there, I just I just made so many friends there that I felt I had a lot in common with, and we all like connected uh, with this one thing, and there were other things too, but it just became very significant for me. And would you identify as like a Columbiner? Back then, yeah, but now since I don't have access to my blog, I can't really do any more Columbine research or make any more Columbine memes so I'm kind of stuck yeah a lot of people who are going to be listening to this won't know the idea of a Columbiner and even people who get the idea of it maybe don't realize how many people are out there that are so interested in it can you just tell me a bit about that kind of lifestyle because again a lot of people aren't going to be familiar with this one thing that people should know is that not all Columbiners are the same 
some people just have a more casual interest in Columbine. Some people are into researching it as a way of preventing more mass shootings in the future. Other people generally feel very sorry for the shooters and what they went through in life, and they wish that nobody would have to go through the same thing. Others are more supportive of their crime, and others just have a general interest in true crime. It's just different for everybody. But I found myself being more supportive of the crime, of course, and started like talking to people who kind of believe the same thing, and we all just kind of found ourselves in support of mass shootings in general. And that it's going to sound unusual for people to hear someone someone say that. What about the the idea of a mass shooting? Do you support? Is it like the chaos it creates? Or again, you talked about kind of the idea of stirring revolution. What if you had to sum it up? What about a mass shooting to, is appealing to you? Well, the one thing that people should know is that. A public massacre is very much an attack on the public itself. Everything else is secondary. It's about the sort of attack on the common people. Not an open attack on one's enemies, but on the people who just sort of blindly support them, people who are complacent, people who, well, some people like to call them sheeple, really. And it's really about just... Because purifying the world from those who really have not much to contribute to it. When you hear of a victim of a crime or victims of a mass shooting, although I, I understand that you you see it as a like a greater good being created, but inside your your heart or your soul, like do you feel sorry for for people who who lose their lives or are and are like affected on an on an individual basis? I really don't feel empathy for them. See, the thing is, when you have the mentality of a mass shooter, you don't really see these people as individuals. You just see them as parts of a whole. When you have this sort of mentality, you pretty much see the world as a giant chessboard where there are pawns that can be sacrificed in the name of something greater. A lot of these people really are just pawns. I mean, what? What do they really have to contribute other than equally unimpressive children? That's, that's really all it is. That last quote you heard is hard not to react to. So if you need to, pause the episode and take a moment to collect your thoughts. But if you're still with me, I'll keep going. At this point, the building blocks used to form the would-be mass shooter are almost all in place. Lindsay and I are now speaking about her interests and her life as it was during her last months of freedom. She's a college student with an uncertain future and an unwavering belief in Nazism. And of course, she's making connections with others who occupy the more extreme end of the Columbiner subculture, the side that views the massacre in a positive light as an accomplishment. Very soon, all these aspects of Lindsay's life will find harmony in a plot to kill and die in a Halifax shopping center. The way I see it, the cliche analogy fits in this case. Lindsay is very much an open can of gasoline, with highly combustible fumes just waiting for a spark. But as fate will soon have it, 
Lindsay would meet a raging fire. Just like how chance online connections would lead her to Nazism and the Columbiners, a chance encounter would soon connect Lindsay with another troubled person, one with similar interests, and one who, just like Lindsay, has a mind in a similarly dark place. It would happen via her blog, which is curiously titled Cock Swastika. Lindsay will describe the blog shortly, but anyone who followed this case likely already saw it. After her arrest, when this blog became connected to her, it was her postings and writings on Cox Swastika that would give the public their first disturbing look into the mind of the would-be mass shooter. What This blog that, that you were using, are you comfortable telling me the name and like what where it was, or would you rather keep that private? The URL of it was Cox Swastika, and it it was just me posting whatever random shit I could find. Everything that from political stuff to just humor to Columbine, just just pretty much everything that I enjoyed. And that cock swastika, that's kind of made it to a lot of the imagery associated with your crime. Was that like a, a name, like a, a username you went by or something? Or was that just the name you chose for your blog? It was the name I chose for my blog. I didn't really use it on any other websites. With Lindsay's cock swastika blog being a sort of disturbing signal she was transmitting into the ethers of cyberspace, she would soon get a subtle response, one that would lead to the last piece of Lindsay's self-destructive puzzle falling into place. It's at this point that Lindsay would cross the path of a fellow Columbiner, 19-year-old James Gamble of the Halifax area. Well, what happened was I kind of I kind of made this little meme. You know there's this one blog called Just Girly Things and they just like like I don't know, post post really I don't know, things things that just seem really dumb to me and one of the things that they posted was like this image of of two girls and it says not being able to live without your best friend. So I made a meme of that like like I, I have that image and then below it is a picture of the Columbine shooters and they're dead. And so I posted that to my blog, and I t- put it in the Columbine tag. And James found me through that post, and he started following me, and I started following him after that. And, well, well after that, we started getting connected on Facebook and stuff like that. And what was, uh, and I think James was pr- pretty active on the same site as a blogger. What kind of, what was his blog called, and, and what kind of stuff was he posting? His blog was called Shallow Existences. He obviously posted a lot of material related to Columbine. He also posted things from the different horror movies he liked. And once he started following me, he started posting stuff related to National Socialism as well. He, he would have seen this post due to the Columbine tag. But do you remember how you first actually uh, made contact with each other? Like the first messages you sent? Well... I kind of told my friends in my Skype group about him, and one of my friends on the Skype group like encouraged me to start chatting with him. And I'm just like, okay, I'll give it a try. And so I just sent a quick message to James saying I thought he was really cool. And, I don't know, he he replied to that, and I eventually asked him like if he had any other... Any other... Uh, accounts online that I could message him on, and he gave me his Facebook account. 
With this episode being titled, Life Before Choosing Death, this is the moment in Lindsay's life where we should stop. For now. Since we started tonight, we've heard how an above-average kid from an above-average family would form deeply held beliefs in Nazism, develop a fondness for all things Columbine, and of course, how she'd connect with a like-minded young man from Canada named James Gamble. In our next episode, part three in this series, our story will pick up right where we left off, with James and Lindsay beginning to send the series of Facebook messages that would ultimately be used in court to illustrate the horrors the two had been planning to carry out. We originally began as just friends. We were just chatting, finding out we had things in common. And then we kind of started planning to meet up in real life, and the context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And after that, I don't know, I just felt really strongly attracted to him. I wasn't sure exactly what these feelings were. I thought it was just, you know, adrenaline from planning a murder, but it turned out to be so much more than that. After we kind of got into the sexting and the dirty images that people are always talking about in the press, he just started acting like he was completely in love with me. And at first I was just kind of going along with it, but then I just started feeling things for him too. And with that, we will conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to thank the Canadian musical duo Vox Somnia for providing the theme for this episode. You can get somber with Vox Somnia's music at the link in this episode notes. I also want to thank anyone who's listening. Without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my free time doing what I love to do. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the creation of the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on the main feed. You can join the group by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Richie V and Ursula F, I sincerely appreciate the support you've showed the show. For anyone else out there who'd like to support me but can't financially, you can give the show a big hand by telling your friends about it and by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, both on and off the show, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If any of you have any story ideas or want to provide feedback from the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com or you can send me a voice message from the contact section of my website, nighttimepodcast.com. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.